So then, remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Have you ever noticed that, uh, that universal stuff is usually never universal? We were talking about this at the wedding yesterday. Uh, some of the groomsmen had the pants that had the uh, you know, little adjustable strap. You, know, you, you pay a bunch of money to get your, uh, to get your clothes altered before a wedding. And, and by altered, they mean they give you a one-size-fits-all pair of pants that doesn't fit anybody. Um, and uh, it's amazing how when things are supposed to work for everything, they suddenly stop working for anything. You know, like a universal remote that, that controls some of the features of some of your devices. Uh, you know, it's amazing how many things out there are supposed to work for everything that actually end up being worse uh, than something that's designed to do one specific thing. We're talking about something that's universal this morning. We're talking about something that's supposed to work for everybody, but sometimes struggles to be universal. We're talking about the church. We're continuing in our series, uh, breaking down the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, we believe as Christians, is the foundation of our faith. Uh, it's the foundational principles of our faith drawn from the Scriptures by the Apostles, by those early leaders of the church, who said this is what it takes to be a Christian. Not a tremendous amount of dogma, but this is what it takes to be a Christian. And today we're breaking down a couple of lines very quick. I believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Catholic Church. Now, we've talked about the Holy Spirit during this series, uh, and we talk about the Holy Spirit a lot in the church. So we're going to focus more on that other line, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Holy, as we've talked about, means to be set apart for God. It, it can sometimes mean to be righteous, but most specific, more, more, uh, more um, commonly, it means to be set apart for God. Right? So to be holy means that God has a purpose for that. So we believe that the church is holy. We believe it's been set apart for God. Catholic, in this sense, uh, is a word that means universal, and it means the church. It's a language that kind of only exists in older documents like this, but uh, in this context, with a small c, holy Catholic means the universal church, the church as a whole. So when we say, I believe in the holy Catholic church, we believe that we are all a part of one church, one Christian church, unified in our faith in God, set apart for God, for a specific mission and service, and that we have a responsibility to share that mission with one another. 
But it gets a little bit complicated, and it can get a little bit tough. Uh, We find ourselves talking to Paul in Ephesians this morning. In the story, Paul is going over one of his central themes, which is the reconciliation of all of God's people. One of the things that made Paul most controversial was his idea that Gentiles, who were culturally different than the Israelites, uh, were, uh, were just as accepted by God, just as accepted by Jesus Christ, as the Israelites. And of course, the Israelites who had grown up believing and understanding that they were the chosen people of God, that God wanted them specifically and more than anybody else, they grew up with this belief. They didn't like the idea that Gentiles now suddenly get a get-out-of-jail-free card and their cultural uh, disconnect uh, doesn't matter anymore. In fact, Paul was, would go on so far to even talk about things like circumcision, which was the mark of a good, godly Israelite, uh, and say, you know, it doesn't really matter. If you want to do that, do it. If they don't want to, they don't have to. Uh, in other words, Paul was saying, look, separate culture from faith. Separate these ideas that make up the things that you do to help you grow in faith and separate the things that are actually from God and are something that's universal. Paul was never, ever shy about what it takes to be a Christian and what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. There was no room uh, for debate there. I, I don't care if you were a, a, a polytheistic Gentile who believed in a, in a number of idols and gods, you needed to reject those before you could be a Christian. But if you braided your hair and the Israelites said that that was bad, that was okay. Now, Paul would be a little bit um, in, uh, uh, incongruent, a little bit um, uh, hypocritical in a way when he would ask the church to kind of follow these, these Israelite uh, um, behaviors in the church. Read a lot of that in First Timothy. Uh, largely to appease the larger Israelite groups. But when it came to whether or not they could be Christian, whether or not they could be of the faith, uh, he very clearly believed that the Gentiles were just as welcome in the fold as the Israelites. The Christian church has had a rocky way to go as far as unity goes, uh, coming from Paul, who tried to unify the Jews and the Gentiles. Christian, to Christianity, our faith is essential. It's important. It's the most important thing in our world, Right? So it makes sense that we struggle with it and we wrestle with it and we sometimes are not okay uh, with how it might be different than somebody else. So we struggle with trying to find unity. I I love this quote from C.S. Lewis in in Mere Christianity. I'm going to read this to you real quick. Theology is practical, especially now. In the old days when there was less education and discussion, perhaps it was possible to get on with very few ideas about God, but it is not so now. Everyone reads, everyone hears things. Consequently, if you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have the wrong ideas about God. So I want to break that down real quick. What C.S. Lewis is telling us in in his book, Mere Christianity, one of these these essential reads, one of these very important pieces of modern Christian literature, uh, C.S. Lewis tells us uh, that theology in a world where we constantly are exposed to God in many forms and many different religions and many different faiths, Theology is important because we can't simply believe anything. We can't simply believe anything that claims to be Christian. We have to apply an element of critical thinking. We have to apply an element of healthy skepticism, even to our own faith, to say that just because somebody tells me this is a Christian belief, is this reconciled with the Scriptures? Is this reconciled with the God uh, uh, of salvation? When churches engage in ideas like xenophobia and believing that that their country or, or their belief system or their ideas all over the world is the only one that God cares about, and that all the others need to earn God's favor. They're completely ignoring uh, Paul, who uh, tried to assimilate the Jews and the Gentiles into one faith, that that our our faith was founded upon a principle that all people are of sacred worth to God, regardless of which border they happen to be born inside of. 
Okay, what about when churches begin to engage in ideas that are so antithetical to belief? Uh, churches that, that do things like protest the funerals of, of as they disagree with countries' policies. And what do we have when, when churches do things that are so antithetical to faith that we're not sure we can still call them Christian? How do we reconcile that with a church that's universal? And it is tough. Because at the same time, we can't just accept that anything is Christian. Uh, we have to accept that people are Christian even when they believe something differently than we do. This is a really tough, fine line to walk. Uh, I want to mull that over for a bit. The church can sometimes fail to be the church, but we still have a responsibility to connect with them and grow, to understand the difference between cultural preferences and the laws and the, and the morality that God has established for us. I think there's two dynamics happening in the church today. Uh, one is like the Pharisees in Paul's day, very dogmatic. This is the dynamic that says everything we do is what you're supposed to do. Everything we do is what you're supposed to do. A perfect example of that is the evangelist who went to Hawaii for the first time, all right? The island of Hawaii. I've never been there. Nobody's asked me to go evangelize there, but if anyone would, I'd be all for that. Um, but, uh, but these evangelists went to Hawaii a little over 100 years ago, and uh, they, uh, they go to Hawaii to evangelize to the natives, a little less than 100 years ago, sorry, to evangelize to the natives who were there, okay? And these are folks who uh, don't speak the language, definitely aren't Christian, they haven't even heard about it before, and their, their attire is just a little bit different than a European uh, uh, white person from the colonies uh, would have, right? Uh, they like flowing, open garments, shirts are optional, uh, if they even had them in some circles, because it's hot, and it's an island nation, and it works for them. But what happened with the evangelists is that they were okay with, isn't it amazing how in the early, early days of the church, even up to our recent history, we were so good at evangelism, that we could just go to a country that we didn't even speak the language, and within a couple of years, they were Christians, right? I mean, now we go down to our neighbor, and we don't want to bother them too much with our, our faith, and much less evangelize to them. But in those days, you know, it's amazing how much work they would do for evangelism. But anyway, they, they go to these Hawaiians, and they realize they, that they dress differently, and they decide, you know, every good Christian man should wear a wool suit when he's in public, right? That's what a Christian man should do. He should wear a wool suit. So they got wool suits for the men in the villages, and they started dying of heat stroke. They, their bodies couldn't handle it. I mean, literally. I mean, th- this is a tragedy. They, their bodies couldn't handle the wool suits because they had never in their lives worn anything like that. Uh, so they began to even reject faith because uh, if faith meant having to wear a wool suit, no thanks, Right? This is a long time ago. This is decades ago, but we're still having the same discussion today. People struggle with the idea that, that they don't want to come to church because they don't know that they can look the part. They don't want to have to dress up. They don't want to have to look the right way. I think it's so cool to, to serve a church where we can have uh, people really well-dressed up and you know, people not as well-dressed up. It's cool that, that T-shirts and suits are just as acceptable side by side. And that's really where the church should be. How we're comfortable, how we see ourselves, bringing ourselves to God. But in the early days of the church, and even today, we get dogmatic. We start saying that, well, everything we do, even if it's wear a wool suit, must be something that all Christians are supposed to do. And we don't apply critical thinking to wonder what is of God and what is just culture. What is just the way we've done things, right? We were joking uh, yesterday about uh, it not really being a true Christian wedding if it didn't have muscacholi, right? Of course, we were joking, but the idea is still there. There's a cultural aspect of what we're used to that we can kind of apply to everything around us, even if it doesn't fit. But there's another dynamic, another dynamic that goes the complete opposite direction. This is the dynamic that completely rejects dogma, that completely rejects uh, the idea of an institutionalized church. This is an idea that says everything goes. As long as it's Christian, it's okay. 
This is an idea that allows uh, people under the name of Christ to say very, very bad things, to say things that are very much against the theology of God and be praised for it and to sell books for it simply because they're Christian, and that must mean it's good. It must be okay and acceptable what they have to say because they profess Christ as their Savior, therefore what they have to say is good. And that's not always the case. Uh, it, it goes back to C.S. Lewis's quote, when we aren't critical about our own faith, when we don't apply critical thinking, when we, when we just accept whatever, then it's not that we have no theology, it's that we end up with a lot of bad theology. It's not that we have no ideas about God, it's that we begin to attribute things to God that aren't reconcilable in the scriptures. I mentioned this before, but one of the things that can be grown in their faith is learning to be critical enough to recognize that just because something is Christian doesn't mean that the theology presented can be reconciled with the scriptures. It also doesn't mean it's bad to be ignored or banned or, or pushed aside uh, or anything other than appreciated because it's trying to profess faith as they know it. We have to begin to understand and own our own faith and at the same time be willing to work with and grow with others. This is really tough. It's not easy. The truth is the church has always struggled with this. Last week was Reformation Sunday. We mentioned the Protestant Reformation. Uh, during the Protestant Reformation, one of the, one of the issues identified by Martin Luther and others was idolatry. They believed this was happening in the church. Uh, and how they believed this was happening was mostly in the realm of trinkets and things like that that they believed were being formed into idols. Uh, coins minted with the names or images of saints on them. Pictures and symbols and even crosses. Uh, with the belief that they had supernatural power. This is where the difference is. Trinkets are not idols, okay? But when it's, there's a belief that they're going to do something is when things change, right? Anything can be an idol when we believe that its power is as great or greater than God's, right? That's where the disconnect is. So this belief that in their home, if they had the right coin or the right image or the right picture or the right symbol, that something special was going to happen in their home, or if they carried around the right kind of coin, they'd be more successful, or if they prayed to the right kind of person who wasn't God, that their crops would come back better. And so this belief system kind of formed in this time period that the reformers believed was very idolatrous. Now, their, their response to that, though, was to miss the point even further and just go the complete opposite direction. In the early Protestant church, austerity was king, to the point that a church had to be plain, bland, as funeral parlor-esque as possible, right? You should be able to walk into a Protestant church in the, in the, in the 1600s and not know whether it's a Protestant church or a PTA meeting, okay? Uh, as plain as possible, no symbols, no crosses, no images of Jesus. No stained glass, nothing like that, because there was a disconnect there. There was a lack of understanding that the issue wasn't the symbols. The issue was what the symbols represented in the hearts of the people who had them. Today in the church, we're, we're finding ourselves back in that middle way, in the via media. As United Methodists, that ought to be a favorite phrase of ours, via media. Finding uh, because we found a way to understand that symbols can be a beautiful way for us to connect in our faith. Uh, structures that help us pray are incredible ways for us to connect with God and center ourselves. I, having a beautiful cross, images of Jesus that remind us of, uh, of the, the times that Jesus had on earth are not idolatry. They're images that point us to God. Nothing that points us to God can be an idol. But again, the disconnect happens when the belief begins that if having these symbols is going to do something supernatural for us. It's tough and it's complicated, but somewhere along the lines we have to be okay with asking the tough and complicated questions and being okay with life that isn't as black and white and as simple as we'd like it to be. Uh, so in the church, we've kind of moved on from that, but that was an issue in the Protestant church in the early days. Uh, the church has always struggled with where do we draw the line between what's cultural and what's essential. 
<clears throat> United Methodists have a firm belief that stems from uh, John Wesley, which stemmed from his faith as an Anglican, and our prayer that prayer was reserved for the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that icons and trinkets uh, can serve and point us to that, but don't actually have any power themselves. And of course, this is important. I can imagine some Protestant reformers would have a lot of issues with our church. Uh, believe it or not, the, the uh, cross, that's a no-no. The candles are a no-no. Uh, in this sense, right? They were used to, to light the liturgies, but in a well-lit sanctuary like this, they're not necessary. So they're idols. And I'm sure they would hate my John Wesley bobblehead, right? I literally have a little statue of a guy sitting on my desk. Uh, now, John, my John Wesley bobblehead isn't because I believe I can, you know, bobble his head and, and have good luck. Uh, but he's an example. He, he's, a, he's what a preacher should be. Somebody who preaches with conviction about what they believe and what God puts on their heart and who is willing to go out into the world to share the gospel even when the world tells him that that's not where the gospel is supposed to go. And that, that's, it's an inspiration for me. I have him on my desk because he's inspiring. Uh, and that's it for me. Not because I think that, uh, that he's going to do something really cool for me. I could sprinkle a little John Wesley all over my sermons and they'll be better received. But even so, we, we have always struggled with this in the church. We have struggled. Where do we draw the line? And the reality is we're going to continue to struggle. Progressive revelation, that's a term I've used before. It's a term I love because it says that over time, the Christian church as a whole has learned more about God. In other words, it's not that uh, we're trying to figure out how to be as first century as possible, but instead we know more about God than our predecessors did. And hopefully our, our next generations will know even more about God than we do. We constantly learn more about God. That happens in a lot of there was a time the Christian church said that slavery was, a, was, was endorsed by God. And then there was a time that the Christian church realized that that isn't what God has in store for us. There was a time that the Christian church said that race was supposed to be separated. That it was Christians, large Christian organizations, large councils of Christians, uh, marched and preached and, and yelled from the top of their lungs in the South that integrating schools was unbiblical and, and against God, and that it was an abomination to God. And there was also a time that they came to realize and understand that, that their political ideology and that their own fear and their own racism was injecting itself into the Bible and finding something that was never there. Progressive revelation is how we learn more about God over time. And that's why the universal church is so important. Because we can't be so arrogant to believe that we've got all the answers and that there's nothing else to learn. We have to believe, even if we believe that certain theologies are dangerous and bad, even if we believe that churches that, that tell us that we should stop loving certain people because they look different or are from different areas, or even if we believe that churches that become so married with politics that we're not sure we can find the difference, even if we believe that churches that tell us that, that, uh, that faith is about a single event and not a journey uh, is harmful, believe this, we have to believe that we're still a part of the same church. We have to believe that that same Holy Spirit, that's why they're on the same line, has the power to build them and learn and, and allow us to learn as well. Because we are making mistakes too, and I hope that the Holy Spirit makes that known to us. To believe in the universal church ultimately is to believe, okay, that the universal church is built on a single foundation. That foundation is the apostles. One holy and apostolic church is what the Nicene Creed uses, the language it uses. It goes a step further to remind us of the apostles, that we come from a formation of the apostles. Those 12 apostles, and then on from there, their descendants, formed the church, built its theology, and served with Jesus Christ. Historically, there's two perspectives about how the church got started. One uh, is, is a historic perspective, 
that Jesus Christ himself appointed and assigned certain apostles to certain roles, gave them certain jobs within the church, and had them form the church. Another one that's more commonly believed is more that it was organic. That Jesus Christ didn't specifically start the church, but he established the things such as the sacraments, and that the apostles then took the sacraments and took what Jesus had taught them and formed the church after his death, sometime after his death at Pentecost. Either way, the idea is the same, that our church has a sacred and shared foundation. To believe that we're different is okay. That we're doing things the way God would have us do is hopefully okay as long as it doesn't turn into arrogance. To believe that maybe others could learn something or maybe others are being clouded in their judgment by things that aren't the Bible is okay as long as it doesn't turn into arrogance. But to believe that we're not the same church is where we really get it wrong and really make a disconnect. To be a part of the universal church is to believe uh, what, what we say in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. I believe the Christian church shares a common ground, a common foundation, that we are all linked together by God and the Holy Spirit, that the same Holy Spirit that spoke through Jesus Christ speaks through every Christian today, lives in every Christian today, and I believe that that holy church, the church was set aside for God to work together and serve together. It's really, really tough and something that Christians have never figured out how to do. For 2,000 years, we haven't figured it out, and I don't think in one sermon in one church in St. Clair, Missouri, I'm going to convince everyone to figure it out around the world. But somehow we have to pray for it and strive for it, that unity could happen in the church, that unity could happen in serving with one another, in celebrating with one another, in challenging one another to believe what they believe and to back it up with Scripture, and challenging one another to grow in faith and accept that progressive revelation of the Holy Spirit. This is the call that we have as Christians. This is the responsibility we're given from God. Christ is our peace, and through Christ I believe that we in the church can take our shared belief in our foundation and build from it. I believe that we can build up from it and make it stronger, and I believe that we can find a way to make it strong and recognize that there is a responsibility to get it right. That as the church we make mistakes and we don't get it right all the time, but we're still supposed to try, not make it an excuse. And I believe that Christ gives us the strength to do all of these things. And I believe that it isn't going to be easy, but it's what we're called to do. When I say I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, that is what I'm saying I believe. And I hope, here for you, is that you can take ownership of that statement as well in your own words. That you can take ownership of a belief in that Holy Catholic Church, in that universal church set apart by God. Amen.